Greetings to all of God's people. This is again Mordecai Joseph. We are now in Lesson 76. And this time we're going to begin with uh, the book of Luke in chapter 9 and verse 1. We will read, Then he called his twelve disciples, speaking about Jesus Christ, together, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And when you realize the context, you understand what it is. For some people who do not have the background, as I mentioned many times, and I will yet in the future to make it clear and understandable, those who do not have a background, they come to the New Testament and they see something totally different. And they indeed invented a totally new religion based on that. Based on falsities and falsehoods and all kind of lies and deceptions and they created a whole world of theology around it. But basically what we see here, the God of Israel coming to his own wife who is being afflicted because of iniquity by demons and sickness and disease and transgressions of all sorts that led to consequences that were not pleasant for the nation, for his own people, his own wife, and so he's merciful to her. And that's what he's doing. He's sending his disciples to preach the coming of the government of which the prophet spoke from the beginning of time. When he shall come back and take his wife back to himself, heal her, atone for her sins and iniquities, and rule over the house of Jacob forever. And that's the context. And if you come into another world that is another theology, another religion, and there are so many of them out there, all based on the same lies, you end up in a totally different context when you read these passages. So we must understand them from the point of view of what the story was all about from the beginning of the history of Israel until the end. And so he sent them preaching the kingdom that is going to be restored, as the disciples ask him about that very matter, and to let them know that they can begin to participate in being members of the kingdom which is coming on this earth. Of course, the disciples at this point don't know that it's not going to happen in their days. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither stuff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do, and, uh, do not have two tunics apiece. In other words, you don't need to uh, really uh, pack and uh, take all kind of provisions because you're not going to go to a long journey. You're going to go only to the towns of Israel, to the villages, and as you do, you should not be going at your own expense, but the people who are going to listen to you are going to take care of your own needs. In other words, it was a mission of faith, where knowing that God is sending them, that Jesus Christ is sending them, that the Spirit of God will be with them, and it would be working with the, with the people of Israel, since the, many of them have been prepared uh, to begin with by the coming of John the Baptist, they did not have to worry about money. Some people think nowadays, because we're so far away from God, that without money you cannot do the work. Now, there is a need uh, for a certain amount of money, because even Christ himself made it very plain, and he ordered that. It was a command from Christ, as Paul said, and so the Lord did command or order that those who preach the gospel should live on the gospel. What it means. Here you see an example. If you trust that God is the one doing it, and if God is truly is the one that is doing it, not just that you think he is doing it, then God will provide. He's going to put it on the heart and the minds of those people who are listening to take care of your needs. But if your first intent is money, 
You want a foundation, you want a bank account, you want a, a tab, you know, on which to uh, put your trust on. Well, obviously, they are going to think about money first before you can do anything. Well, God's work functions in the opposite direction. Uh, men would never do a thing like that, but God does, because with him all things are possible. And so he tells them, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. And that's the way it is. You go into somebody's house that God is calling, and again, it's all the children of Israel who know the law of God, who know the Torah of God, who know hospitality, who appreciate the word of God. You see, all that in the context of that uh, reality and scenario. And verse 5, And who or whoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, never cram down your religion, the throat of people, just like he said later on, or another uh, context. You do not give your pearls to the swine. If they have like that, in other words, like people who have no appreciation for it, well, you should not give it to them, not just because they don't deserve it, but also, on the other hand, out of love. If they cannot comprehend it and cannot receive it, why harden their heart even worse? Why shove it down their throat and make them more accountable for it? Just let them alone. You know, we'll catch them on another trip, so to speak. And so they departed and went through the towns, preaching the good news, the tidings, and healing everywhere. Because these were the people of God. And he was dealing with them, and he was not dealing with the nations. And we continue the story with chapter 9, and verse 51 to 56, where we read, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, in other words, to go up to heaven, where he came from, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. In other words, that was the time when the Samaritans, who were keeping a measure of the law of God at the time, uh, from the time that they were brought uh, by uh, Assyria into that land, but obviously they were not truly uh, the people of God, and so the Jews would have nothing to do with them even called them dogs, had a very low uh, esteem of them. And on the other hand, when these people who were about to uh, keep the feast uh, again, so that these people are not going to keep it with them, but go to Jerusalem, well, they said, we have nothing to do with you, and we're not going to let you in. And that's basically was the background to it. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? In other words, the disciples now, unfortunately, are showing the very attitude of the rulers of this world and of the leaders of many organizations. You don't do what we say to you, you're going to get hurt, and we're going to suck it to you. And that was the attitude, and Jesus Christ reminded them that that's not his spirit. It is another spirit. And so in verse 55, But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And he did not come to destroy the nation of Israel, as some people think that he came to do that. You know, he's going to die and then tell them, Get out of my sight, I don't want to see you anymore. No, he came to save them. 
He came to save his wife from sin, from iniquity, to atone for her sins. And so you read that in the context of what is the commission of the Savior of Israel, of the husband of Israel. And he's not even interested in destruction of all the nations. Because ultimately for them, they too are going to be delivered through this marriage between him and his wife. And they are going to be the results. And so we continue now with the story of uh, this uh, issue of the Israel of God in chapter 10. After these things, the Eternal appointed, that is, the Adon, the Master, Adon appointed 70 others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. So he sent them to prepare the way for him, to prepare the people, to preach the gospel, to perform some signs and wonders and miracles, and to prepare the way for his coming, just like John the Baptist did earlier. In verse 2, then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest, that is the Adon of the harvest, the master speaking about his father, to send out laborers into his harvest. And he's speaking again about his own people, about his own wife. The wife, many of them, who have been suffering for the consequences of their own sin, and there was bondage there of Rome, and there was bondage of the religious leaders, and there was bondage in every way, and they desperately needed a physician and a deliverer. And so he was coming to his own to bring them and to offer them deliverance. And of course, even then he did not intend for all of them really to respond. That was not the commission at that time. But the foundation to be laid, and on that gradually, as the increase in numbers and the generations go by, and then they come to the end when they're prepared and ready to be the top layer, so to speak, the spiritual uh, level and layer of the entirety of the body of Christ, which is his wife and his church and the people of Israel, so they can be ready to teach the rest of Israel the ways of God and also the nations. And so he tells them, that this is the purpose for which he came now. And so he sent them to prepare the way, and he told them, Go your way, behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. And he's speaking again in, in, in the context of the journey that they've taken into the towns and cities, because not all of them were going to respond, especially when he talked about the leaders. They're not about to listen to somebody else that will take away their influence over the nation, over the people, and uh, cut, you know, the source of money. And the same story is happening today also. Verse 4, carry neither money money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. In other, in other words, that's not the time to waste time doing this and doing that inside the uh, trip, so to speak. You just concentrate on the commission. But whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house, shalom in Hebrew, to this house, and if a son of peace is there, that's an idiom speaking, in other words, if the, the people of that house are peaceful, uh, your peace will rest upon it. And if not, it will return to you. In other words, go somewhere else. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. 
And basically he's explaining the manner in which his work is going to be done in this age, in this phase. For the simple reason that the tithe was given to the priest and to the Levite. And it was given in exchange for the service that he was rendering God and the fact that he did not receive an inheritance uh, like the others. So it is a different category here. And that's why you don't see any of the apostles, any of the disciples ever speak about tithe, about taking the tithe from the people. This is going to be a work of faith, he told them. And so when you go to people, and if the Spirit of God is working with those people, they're going to take care of your needs. And that's why you don't see the apostles ever, ever creating this bureaucracy of tithing and loading it over the people and taking advantage of them. It was a totally different phase of doing the work of God. And as for the tithe, that was given only to the priests and to the Levites. And he never commanded the disciples, you go and take the tithe. And when people departed from that teaching, well, they went into what we know today in the past 2,000 years and still going on to this very day, an age of corruption among leaders. Well, covetous of power, covetous of money, and those are the first two things that they're after. Unfortunately, and that's for the overwhelming majority of them, there would be some exceptions here and there. And so he tells them, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as they are said before you. And that's the work that is going to be done from now on, a work of faith. And heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. And again, he's talking about the kingdom that is going to return to Israel. And it's going to return to Israel when the king is coming back and the resurrection is going to occur and the rule of God is going to be done on this earth and the will of God as it is in heaven. And that's what he's talking about all the time. And you can see what happened to this message. It was totally derailed and turned into something totally different and that's why there was a need for the counterfeit religion, this false religion, to totally change the terminology. Everything they could. Instead of tithing its gospel, instead of the law, they had principles and ethics and values and catechism and uh, Christianity and Christian this and Christian that. And everything was changed because it was a false religion, that's why. And so he told them in verse 10, but whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. So he had the opportunity to hear about this message. And of course, he's not talking about the present uh, coming of the kingdom at that time. Some people at Rome, because of ignorance and no knowledge and understanding, they thought, well, I guess that means that we are the church is the kingdom. Well, the church is not the kingdom. You see, the kingdom is the rule of God. And the church is not the rule of God. And that's the reason why men who have taken over power began to rule over the brethren. Because they thought they are the kingdom of God. You know, they, are the, they call themselves the government of God. We are the government of God. Men is not the government of God. God is the ruler. And that's what government is. And that's what king means. Or kingdom. Rulership. God hasn't given us this rulership today. That's coming in the future. That's why he said when he comes, he's going to give the reward to everyone. He's going to give to some uh, two cities, five cities, ten cities, whatever. And uh, to the disciples, he's going to give a throne to each one of them, ruling 
over the house of uh, Israel, each one has a tribe, that kingdom hasn't come yet, that rule hasn't come yet. So they said today is the kingdom, that's confusion. And so he sent them, and so they went. Verse 17, then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And the children of Israel were in such a mess at the time that there were so many demons all around. And the wife of God was being afflicted. And so Christ, in his love toward his wife, was casting away Satan and giving them the opportunity to come to know of the tidings, which they had known all along. They are reading about all the time in the prophets. But this time they were given a taste of it through the person and through the power of God. And so these disciples of Jesus Christ, as they go into the cities of Israel, speaking by the people of Judah at the time, whatever other tribes were with them, Benjamin and uh, Levi and some of the tribes of Israel, sprinklings of them. And so they were very excited when they saw that. And so Christ told them, and he said to them, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he's speaking about something that happened in the past and something that is going to happen in the future. And behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall be by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. In other words, don't be drunk with power. This is what happens to people when they receive knowledge or when they receive authority. It goes to their head. And so don't concentrate on that. This is not what it should be looking for. And that's human nature to do that. And that's what they abuse. And that's the reason why people hate government. And they hate government in any form because of the abuse by those who put their heart in the wrong places. And so he tells them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And if the leaders had their mind on God, and if his kingdom was real to them, and if God was real to them, and his truth and word was real to them, they wouldn't be covetous. They wouldn't be lovers of power and money, and uh, exercising dominion and authority over the faith of their own brethren. No, they'll just be excited all the time and delirious and filled with joy, realizing that their names are written in heaven, which means they're going to be in that kingdom and live for eternity. And it's for the joy that is ahead of us that we should do whatever we do. That's what we can get now, here and now. And yet this is where most people, most leaders put their heart and mind on. And that's exactly what Satan was offering Satan. I'm sorry, that's what Satan was offering uh, Jesus Christ in the temptation, as you read about it in Matthew 4. The glory and the honor and the, and, and, the, and the power of this world. And Jesus Christ rejected it. Now, servants of God, if they do not reject it, they are making it very plain. They are of this world. And they fall down and bow before Satan in this age. When they go after power and money and authority instead of rejoicing that the names are in heaven and doing their best to make it possible for others to be in the same category also. And that was the problem with the leaders of Israel, the spiritual shepherds of Israel, that led them astray. And that's where this whole story is all about. And that's the reason why God needs to have another covenant, a new covenant, because of what happened to his wife, the sickness that entered into his wife and especially into the leadership that caused the people to even be sicker than they were. And so in verse 22 he says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, 
and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, because they are the ones who live eternally together. Both of them are called eternal, and obviously they know each other in a way that no human being can ever know them, as long as we are human beings. And so he says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And if the Son does not will to reveal to the Father, and the one that the Father does not call and give to Jesus Christ, well, he can do all the work he wants, nothing is going to happen. Some people think that everybody can be a, an evangelist and go out there and get people and bring them over here, you know, recruiting, just like the U.S. Army. It doesn't work like that. Uh, you know, we can sell the word, which is fine. God commands us to do it. But to think that we actually can come and bring them over and uh, just by convincing them that, you know, we are good people and what we do is right and good and all that, uh, that has nothing to do with conversion. That has to do with a personal calling by God himself. But on the other hand, you know, we should not say because of that we shouldn't do anything. So there is a balance there and an understanding and we should always remember that it is of God to both will and do. And if it is not his will to both will and do, nothing is going to happen in terms of conversion. Good things can happen, but not conversion. And so he turned to his disciples, verse 23, and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets, spoken by the prophets of Israel and kings of Israel, had desired to see what you see because they knew what the kingdom was all about. They talked about it. They wrote about it. They were inspired by God about it. He revealed to them what the kingdom was all about. And we read an awful lot of that. And you can read more if you read all the prophets. And you can read it from Moses. And yet the desire to see them. That's the kingdom that he's talking about. The kingdom that is returning to Israel. Not that Israel will be the only one. You know, an end in itself. But so they can spread that word of, of God. Once they themselves are established as the wife of God. As the people of God. As the chosen family of God. Forever. To go and extend it to others who can become the children. And that should be the greatest desire of the leader and the servant that God calls, not to accumulate for himself and build himself a big house and uh, have a big expense account and uh, ask for more and more and more and more and more all the time. I mean, you can imagine that, you know, in this context, when you're going to a house that God says, go to your house and preach the word of God and whatever they set for you on the table and eat, in other words, don't be a glutton and ask for more and more and more and more and more. And that's exactly what many leaders do. Because they offer different spirit. That's why. No, you know, that's a good excuse. You know, for doing the work. And so the prophets of Israel and the kings of Israel and the righteous men of Israel and the saints of Israel, as we read about some of them, uh, even here in the story of uh, Jesus Christ, uh, Simeon, the, uh, the men of God, and Anna, the prophetess, a woman of God, that were waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is the thing that they, they were desiring to see, and they were glad because they were able to see the child. Knowing from the prophets and the apostles, and, and the, that is the kings, and the, like David and others, who wrote certain things also, that the kingdom was coming to Israel, the redemption is coming to Israel, deliverance is coming to Israel, and also later on to the nations of the earth through Israel through the king and through his wife. And so, this is the context of what we are reading here. 
And when people had no knowledge and no understanding of that, they, they invent their own theologies, their own gospel, their own teachings, and the thing that they are, they call themselves Christians, they call themselves Christianity, they call themselves Christendom, and so forth and so forth. Anything, anything but what God said that we are. And the terminology that God used and the ter- terminology that his prophets and his disciples used, all that went by the wayside, out of the way. And that's why God says, let the wicked forsake his way. You see? His way is anything but the way of God. His way has nothing to do with the, with the terminology of God. And so he has to invent his own terminology because he doesn't like the way of God. And the terminology that God gave for his law, for his statutes, for his judgments and precepts, and I'm speaking in English, and of course it's a translation from Hebrew, but at least it's a proper translation of what God said instead of all the others that men have invented that by themselves are not wrong, but when you realize what's really behind it, it's the, the desire to totally separate one from the other and claim that this is a new religion with a new God, with a new theology. You see? And that's what the concept of the church is all about. Speaking about the false one, not the, the, the true one that was always the same. Now let's go to uh, chapter 11. And in verse 14, we read, And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out, that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub. In other words, the, 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 the prince uh, of uh, the flies. That was another name for, for Satan. The ruler of, of the demons. And... Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. And that's in essence what was happening within the nation of Judah at the time. In specific, there was so much division, so many sects, so many groups. And you see today in our midst today, the same thing, much confusion. And people like that, who are in that state of mind, God says, are going to fall. 18, verse 18, If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So he's speaking about Satan. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Which they were doing, by the power of God. And God was the one that was backing it up. Therefore, there will be your judges. Because God was still having mercy on his own people. And he was calling people among his own to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And in time past, not many, not many times that it happened, you know, there was also resurrection by people like Elisha and others. Elijah. But if I cast out demons, verse 20, with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And he's again not talking about the, the, this ethereal concept that was developed later on by people of ignorance. But he's talking about the very fact that he is the king, the ruler of that kingdom that is coming, that is going to be restored. But that was in due time, and it's not in their day. But now they had an access to him, just like the children of Israel had an access directly to the king of that kingdom, and they were that kingdom. Kingdom of priests, royal priests. 
And here again, they were having an opportunity to come to that very relationship that their forefathers in Sinai did have. And verse 21, he's explained to them that a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace. His goods are in peace. And in, es- in essence, he's telling them that the reality that that's the way it operates. That Satan is very jealous over his own, and you see many leaders, when they take control over an organization, they're very jealous over that organization, and they want to keep it to themselves. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let anybody else come and take away their members, or whatever it may be. And their intent is, I want it all for myself. And yet, the people of God don't need to be in that attitude, in that spirit. If the people are being ruled by God, nobody can take them away. As Christ said, nobody can pluck them out of my hand because you have given them to me. And if God gives his people to certain leaders to lead and God indirect, nobody can take them and pluck them out of their hands. And if they are fearful of that, that, and if they are worried about that, well, then perhaps God hasn't given those people to them, or else nobody would be able to dissuade them. On the other hand, you also need to protect, you know, the flock uh, that may be a little bit on the gullible side and innocent and may not understand or comprehend what the rules are all about. So there is a balance there between the two. But in other case, uh, one should not be possessive over the lives of others, thinking that they are his own. We don't belong to anybody, we belong to God. And that's what he's talking about here. And oftentimes, unfortunately, people forget that and they go to their own thing. Chapter 59, verse 1, we continue the story where Christ continues to reveal his truth about his wife and his people. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. These are the children of God. This is the wife, members of the wife of God, and this is their husband sitting right in front of them. And when you read the New Testament, if you know, what we call the New Testament, what man calls the New Testament in terms of the writings, the disciples never called it by that. If you don't take that into account, you really don't understand what you're reading and you don't have a proper appreciation for it. And you don't read it from God's point of view. You're reading the history of his church as he wrote it. His own people, Israel. And so when some of the members of his own wife came to him, and they were not uh, among the leaders, obviously, who were the haughty and the arrogant, who were not interested in hearing the word of their master, uh, when the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Instead of rejoicing and being happy that people are coming back to God and are being restored, they complain about it. Why? Because they're losing their own possession. That's how regarded, they regarded them. You know, that's the spirit of Satan. And when people today have the same attitude and the same spirit, well, this is where they get it from. And so in verse 3, so he spoke his, this parable to them, saying, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Look at the difference between his attitude toward his people and even the sinful among them and the attitude of the leaders. You know, the first thing they do, they throw the book at you and clobber you over the head and make you feel like dirt, you know, worth nothing and all that, and humiliate you, you know, oftentimes in public, and let everybody know, and so forth. And their purpose is to destroy you, not to build you up to humble you, to bring you back under their wings, not that of God. God doesn't treat his people like that. 
when he sees a sinner returning to him, he welcomes them with open arms. That's one reason why people uphold government and uphold their leadership, and some people are not willing to, to, to acknowledge the fact that they are the ones who, who brought, who caused the people to develop this kind of an attitude and resentment against leadership and against government and against the ministry. And the ones who do not acknowledge it to begin with are blind and hypocrites. That's the first thing you should acknowledge. People do not resent government unless government is oppressive. People would rather have government to show them the way, to lead them in the righteous path, to help them along the way. But when government becomes oppressive and abusive and self-possessive and all that, well, that's natural for the people to uphold that and to have contempt for it, and that's exactly what God said He's going to do about the ministry in the days of old, about the prophets and about the priests. He said He's going to make them vile in the sight of the nation, in the sight of the people, because of their wickedness and their abuse that they've committed against his own people. Things are not different today. And so he's showing them that he's different. When he loses someone, he, he, he leaves all the rest because they're doing well, and he goes after that one. And when he comes, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And he's talking about his own people, about his own nation, about his own wife. And that's why he called himself also the shepherd, and there are the sheep. And that's why he told his disciples, you go into the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the whole context of what we are reading. And some people spiritualize that into something totally different. So you take it first, you know, for what it was meant to be, the wife of God, the people of God, the nation of God, and then also on the individual level, the members among them, and then for those that God called from other nations and so they too fall into that category as time goes by and so he says and I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in verse 7 in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance and so this is how he feels about his own people his own wife and unfortunately many who begin a work and then have followers and the power goes to their head, and money accumulates, and they totally forget the whole thing, what it was meant to be, and they forget their Lord and Savior and His example, and they become like the rulers of the Gentiles. And God says, when you go to the lordship of the house of Israel, as He told Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Not abuse them, not, you know, empty their pockets, Live on high, put them down, call them lay members, so forth. You know, the terminology that was invented by uh, a member that is a leader in the, in the counterfeit church to distinguish between the ministry and those who are not in the ministry, in the process, you know, contempt set in, and that's the attitude to this very day. Well, you're a lay person, you know, you know nothing, what do you know? That's not of God. And then, uh, in verse 11, he gave the example of the prodigal son. And, you know, the story of the prodigal son that uh, decided, well, I want to do my own thing. And the story is very plain there, but the, the, the point that we want to make there is that Israel became the prodigal son. They departed from their gods. They went astray. And God is waiting for them to come back to him, to welcome them into his arms. 
And yet some others who were called in the meantime, especially among the nations, they said, oh, well, God rejected you because you were evil and he chose us. You know, and they went beyond that. They say we all go to hell. And we are the people of God. You are the, we are the true church. You are not. You are the sons of the devil. And so they kill them and destroy them and all that. And this, uh, this parable was not given for nothing. It was not just on an individual basis, speaking about, the, about his wife. The whole concept here is about his wife. The whole commission is about his wife, the people of Israel. And so when you put everything in, in, in context, then you understand it better. Instead of spiritualizing it and making it something totally altogether different than what it was meant to be. And so God is waiting for his people to come back. And he's going to bring them back. And the nations, you know, some individuals among the nations that were being called began to be haughty and boastful and arrogant about it. And that's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 9, 10, 11. He was putting them in place. In their own place where they should remember where they, who they are and what they are. They were just the, olive, the wild olive branches that were grafted into the natural tree. And that does not mean that God forsook his people. He said, God forbid. God had not forsaken his people. All Israel is going to be saved. And he said, you don't boast in your calling. Because if you behave like that, God is going to remove you. Just like he grafted you in, he's going to get rid of you. And in the past 2,000 years, that's exactly what we saw in the counterfeit church. And unfortunately, there are many in our midst who know that they are the children of Israel, who are now have been called and converted and have the Holy Spirit, and know who they are. And yet, because of the Babylonish system out of which they came, and the war and the, and the wine that they've been drinking all this time until they were called, they brought a measure of it with them. And many of them think, well, we are the church, and Israel, well, God is going to deliver them. And, you know, he put down Israel and picked up the church. And they develop that attitude of contempt. And they don't even realize it. And to begin with, many of them, though they know that they are Israelites of the tribes of Israel, they oftentimes think in the terms of the, the, uh, the writings of the disciples, in terms of the Jews, you know, the Jews. And uh, some of them, unfortunately, have foul attitude against the people of Judah, which is the tribe of the lawgiver out of which Christ came. And so they have contempt for anything that thing is Jewish and doesn't dawn on them that many of the things that the Jews still keep to this very day, along with all the uh, misinformation that they have, is the Torah of God, the knowledge of God, the service of God. And that's what Paul was saying. What advantage does the Jew have much in every way? So when we look at it from God's point of view, we see it totally differently. And we should appreciate it from God's point of view. But yet, even though... Judah, in this case, because this is the people that he's talking to the most, the house of Israel is gone, a few of them only are among Judah, even though they rebelled against him and rejected him, that is, the leaders, and then the leaders deceived the people also, and most of them, and the whole nation, as time went by, totally rejected, you know, Christ, though in his generation most of them accepted him, or at least many, many of them did, because of what the leaders have done to them, they blinded them, and God allowed it, because he was not about to call all of them at that point, no more than he was about to call all the nation of Israel, and certainly much less, he was not about to call the, the Gentiles or the nations at the time. That was not the time. Everyone in his own order, you know, the first fruit, Israel, and then the rest. But though Judah rebelled against him and sinned grievously, 
though they became the prodigal son, for that matter, all of Israel were the prodigal son, yet he was going to bring them back. And nobody should be boastful or haughty or arrogant about it. And so the purpose of giving the parable of the prodigal son has much more to do uh, with just a personal example of an individual who fell into that attitude. He's speaking in specific about his own nation, because that's the whole commission that he is, is to come to his, to his own, to the lordship of the hands of Israel. So all of them descended from that point of view first. And let's go now to chapter 16. And we read in uh, verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day, speaking about Lazarus and the rich man, you know the parable. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of source, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his source. Of course, that parable never happened, but he's trying to make a point. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And he's talking about the time when Abraham is going to be resurrected and he's going to be in a fellowship with his father Abraham. In other words, his heart is going to return to the fathers, just like the commission of John. And being in torments in, in the grave, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham, in other words, at the resurrection, afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And so he's in the kingdom, Lazarus, and the rich man is not. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented, because of, you know, you live in iniquity, you rebelled against the Torah of God. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great goal fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. In other words, if you do not keep the law of God, which he gave Moses, as he mentioned in other places, I cannot return to you, and you cannot return to me. And that's what the commission of John was, to return you know, the children of Israel to the fathers, that is their heart, and the heart of the fathers to the children. That's the ultimate meaning of that passage. And so this is where he finds himself now. Verse 27, and Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Well, Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. And you see, the law of God is still there. Let them hear them. You see, as, more, as Christ said, If you don't believe Moses and the prophets, how can you believe me? Verse 30, And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And so Jesus Christ came to his own, and then he rose after he died for his own, and they still did not believe in him. Now that's what the whole context is all about. So Israel, when they are ready to go back to the law of Moses and the prophets and believe in it, then their heart will be turned to the fathers and the heart of the fathers to them, and they shall all be in the same kingdom. And that's, again, what the whole commission of Jesus Christ is all about, and his disciples, and to this very day, to return the hearts of the children of Israel to the fathers to whom the covenants and the promises were given. So the heart of the covenant of the fathers will be returned to them. And that's the whole context of what God is talking about in this, in this uh, passage. 
as he came in person in the flesh and spoke to his own people. And you can see that Abraham makes it very plain that it is Moses and the prophets that make it possible for us to come to Christ. Exactly what Paul told Timothy. From a child you have known the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make you wise unto salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. You know, the King of Israel, the God of Israel. And the Holy Prophets that he's speaking about in the Holy Scriptures of Moses and the Prophets. And the false religion said, well, we have nothing to do with Moses and the prophets. You know, well, we just take, you know, the book of Psalms, because that's very inspiring. But forget about all the rest. And they even publish Bibles, they call it Bibles, of only the New Testament and the Psalms. Well, sometimes only just the book of John. That tells you of what manner of spirit they are. And many of us, without even realizing, there is still so much of that in our blood, and we're thinking many things as we read the word of God from that point of view. And that's why it was easy for Satan to deceive his own, you know, the people of God. Well, they do not even know who the church is. And they don't even know what kind of government the church should have. And what kind of uh, theology. And they have constant debates about this and about that. When the church is the same one from Sinai. Based on the law. On Moses and the prophets. And the teachings of the kingdom that they brought. And Jesus Christ came to confirm those things. He came to confirm the promises that were given to the fathers. And it's one religion, one book, one people, one nation, one church. There are no two of them. And the confusion and the Babylon entered into the hearts of many, you know, 2,000 years ago. And it's still there to this very day. And God tells us, come out of Babylon or else you're going to be partakers of all of her plagues. Anyway, we're going to stop at this point now. This is a natural break here. And this is Mordecai Joseph saying again greetings to all of God's people, and next time we'll pick up the story from this point. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible Study. You have questions? The Bible has answers. <laughs>